from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. So my next job is to introduce uh, tonight's distinguished speaker, uh, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier, Chief of the Air Staff of the Royal Air Force. Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier is in command of the Royal Air Force, leading a whole force of some 35,000 regular and reserve personnel, 5,000 civil servants who are also supported by thousands of contractors. He's personally accountable for the safe and effective operation of over 700 manned and unmanned aircraft and for meeting the air power needs of defense, which currently means thousands of people and every frontline force committed to operations worldwide. In addition to sustaining his people and this exceptionally high level of commitment, he's also responsible for delivering the significant growth in the Royal Air Force's frontline capability announced in the 2015 Defense Review. Prior to assuming his current appointment in July 2016, he was the Deputy Chief of Defence Staff Military Capability in the Ministry of Defence between 2012 and 2016, responsible for strategic force design, balance of investment and capability coherence across all areas of UK joint military capability. He has significant other experience in MOD capability planning, acquisition and programme delivery and his most recent previous command appointment was as Air Officer Commanding 2 Group from 2008 to 2010, responsible for the RAF's I-STAR, air transport, air refueling, force protection, and search and rescue capabilities. A current Tornado GR4 pilot and flying instructor, he has over 3,500 flying hours and extensive operational and command experience, ranging from squadron pilot to theater commander of British forces. He received his knighthood in 2014, and was appointed CBE in 2004. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for operations over Iraq in 1999 and the United States Bronze Star for Iraq operations in 2003. Sir Stephen, please. Uh, President, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for that introduction. And uh, can I also offer my congratulations uh, to uh, those new honorary fellows uh, and also to Gordon Woolley um, for the uh, Presidential Sword Award. Um, I did have to notice that Sir David Henderson was put up there as one of the first of those uh, fellows. Um, and uh, he does indeed have a bit of a claim to be the father of the RAF. In fact, I am being pressed constantly on that. Um, it's because he was Scottish, um, and some people, and those who, haven't, uh, who don't know me will have noticed by now that that also happens to be my origin. And so with the 100th anniversary of the Royal Air Force coming up, you can understand that I'm under considerable pressure uh, in relation to David uh, Henderson. Um, but it's an absolute delight and a privilege uh, to be here uh, this evening particular privilege to be delivering the, uh, one of your 150th anniversary uh, lectures, uh, and I have to say, in particular, the Wilbur and Orville Wright uh, lecture. As you know, the theme of this lecture has historically been about pioneering aerospace. 
And we're honouring tonight two gentlemen whose endeavours gave the world heavier, heavier than air-powered flight, who pioneered the means through which most of us in this room, and dare I say, perhaps me especially, have lived our professional lives. They've not only pioneered the means, but they also provided the inspiration. And it's Orville Wright who said, I got a thrill out of flying before I had ever been in the air at all, while lying in bed thinking about how exciting it would be to fly. And I have to say that pretty much describes me as a young boy, um, because I used to sit there in my bedroom, and uh, I actually had a poster um, uh, over that bed, and it was the first flight of the tornado. And rather to my surprise, um, firstly, I eventually got to fly the tornado, and rather also to my surprise, it's still in service uh, at the moment. <laughs> but as the, uh, was mentioned in the introduction, uh, I do lay a very slight claim uh, to being a current tornado pilot because I think it's important that I do do that. Uh, and so I do still fly the, uh, the tornado, and it's doing a remarkable uh, job on operations. So it's been my very great fortune, I think, to be able to translate my early inspiration into a career which has presented me now with this ultimate honour and privilege of commanding the Royal Air Force. What I hope to do justice this evening uh, to that inspiration is by talking about how we are growing the future RAF. Now, I was a little bit conscious that I was sitting there that I thought, well, what's the backdrop? And uh, it says the next hundred years. And as I'm growing the RAF, uh, well, the RAF, uh, very shortly, in about 18 months, will start its next uh, 100 years. And it's one of part of my uh, job is to make sure we celebrate and commemorate our first 100 years appropriately. But I'm a little bit worried that you look at this and say, the next 100 years to Mars and beyond. That's not the subject of the presentation this evening, and it's not how I intend to grow the Royal Air Force. <laughs> what I'll be talking about is... Uh, new equipment and technologies, uh, you would expect that. But what I also want to talk about is opportunity, challenge, and risk. And I also want to talk about people, because you, either, you don't either get the technology without them, or indeed the means to do something useful with that technology. And if I might quote Wilbur Wright, he said, it is possible to fly without motors, but not without knowledge and skill. Ultimately, my ability to lead the RAF on the path to successful growth will define my tenure as its commander. And what I'm talking about here is real growth. As has already been mentioned, the Defence Review last year, we're now deep into the process of planning how to deliver those considerable and very welcome enhancements. But it's always worth reminding ourselves that the RAF has rarely been required to grow its capability in this way. And what I mean by that is grow whilst fighting. Perhaps it's only been during the world wars we've been in this position. Today, the Royal Air Force is facing that challenge, and perhaps not on the same scale as before, certainly proportionally, it's there. It's a demanding task, full of opportunity and risk in equal measure. And what I'll do in this uh, lecture is argue that the Royal Air Force, and by extension, those in this room who support it, will only succeed in this endeavor if we're going to live up to that strap line we have about being agile, adaptable, and capable. So I'm going to break this up into three themes. I'm going to look at today's Royal Air Force. I'm going to look at that demand signal, that growth. And then my main focus will 
be how to meet that challenge of growth. Today's RAF then. Those who've already heard me speak over the last few months will know that I invariably start by saying about what the RAF is doing, not just today, but right now at this very moment. I do that because ultimately this is what defines us as an organization. It's our ability to project and deliver precise air power effect to wherever it's required and do it quickly. I also do this as a constant reminder to myself that at this very moment, some, in fact, many of my people are in harm's way and that returning them safely requires consistent, exemplary risk management at every link in a very long chain of people and organizations. And they do that so well. So right now, I have pilots and ground crew on 15 minutes alert with typhoons at Coningsby and Lossiemouth ready to defend our airspace. You will know from the media just how busy that task has now become. There are typhoons also on alert in the Falklands. Tankers and support helicopters on alert as well. Air transport in the air right now supporting operations around the world. ISTAR airborne right now supporting operations in the Middle East. And for every hour of the year which has just gone by, the RAF has flown nearly two hours of ISR on operations in that theater alone. Tornadoes, typhoons, and reapers collectively delivering over 600 precision strikes in Iraq and Syria this year alone. And reaper is there right now 24 seven. The operating crews might be in the United States or they might be close to here at RAF Waddington. But that physical separation, I can assure you, doesn't mean that they're in any way separated from the mission or indeed its consequences. Such remotely piloted operations are now routine business for the RAF, but how did we get here? I think to truly understand the RAF of today, we need to understand that journey that we've been on, indeed since 1990. We had the relative certainties of the Cold War. Through the 1991 uh, Gulf War, a character of conflict which I think it's reasonable to say is unlikely to be replicated. Then it was Bosnia, Kosovo, no-fly zones over Iraq, the 2003 Gulf War, enduring stabilization mi missions in Iraq and Afghanistan, then Libya at the same time, and now Iraq, once again, and Syria. At each stage, the RAF has been agile, adaptable, and capable, providing the government with viable military operations. It's provided us with that decisive military edge. Now, I'm not saying that air power has done it alone. Uh, of course I'm not. But what I do say is that without air power, none of it would have happened. Others have taken due note of our strength in the air, and they've adapted accordingly, and that sets us new challenges for the future. So what overall does this tell us about the RAF of today? Most obviously, a battle-hardened force. Everyone has experienced operations, at least to some degree, many over multiple tours. My people know what it is to go away and fight. But there's a risk that that experience, it's deep, it could be relatively narrow though, and continuous operational tours are inevitably tiring. Now I know you will be thinking the RAF has shrunk considerably in size since 1990, and that is absolutely the case. But in quantitative terms, but in qualitative terms, we are a formidable giant, I would argue with an almost recapitalized force, 
Not just platforms, but weapons and systems. It's an enviable position. I know this. I've spent in my five months in command so far, I've been to a dozen countries, um, some of them more than once, and I've talked to my counterparts, and they look at us with envy. In our people, there are far few regulars, but at the same time, we've embraced the whole force approach. Regulars, reserves, civil servants, and contractors to deliver our military outputs. Affordability has become an increasingly important factor, but we simply cannot live in a vacuum disconnected from uh, the nation that funds us or resist the challenges of value for money or increased efficiency. We owe it to the public and to ourselves to get every last bit of capability out of the money we are given. And we've therefore modernized our approach to become as effective as in the business space as we've remained in the battle space. The context in which we generate and employ military force has also changed. The information age is well and truly here. All operations are now joint by default as well. Globalization has sped up. Technology proliferates rapidly with commercial companies now increasingly dominating what was traditionally a cutting edge defense activity. So the RAF of today, continuously fighting for 25 years, valuable combat experience. Smaller, delivering more punch for our weight. An almost completely modernized force, new, more efficient ways of doing business than before. Pioneering new methods for the generation of air power and sharing the US's journey in areas such as precision weapons, low observability, and remote operations. And we've evolved from single role to multi-role platforms, and we're able to act simultaneously as a result across air power roles and multiple levels of warfare. We've come a long way, but our journey has barely begun. But it does provide us with a starting point for our growth into the future. So let me then now turn to growth. Why has the RAF been tasked to grow in a way which is, uh, we haven't seen in generations? Well, there's a fairly self-evident, obvious point, but it's important nonetheless. It's because we are that common denominator in every military operation. When was the last time we had an operation where air wasn't involved? Air power provides the nation, therefore, with viable, i.e. capable and affordable options, and we have the agility to act quickly at range when necessary. The source of the growth signal is that SDSR in uh, 2015, and I do always promise at this stage, it wasn't because I was running the SDSR that the RAF did so well, um, but nevertheless, uh, the goal of that was to give the UK the ability to fight in the information age, to give us a greater potential to operate across the spectrum of operations, and to do so alongside NATO and our allies. This is a much-changed emphasis from where we were in 2010. How are we going to do this is Joint Force 2025. What is the headline figure? Well, it's about 50,000 people fighting in a joint and integrated way, and the RAF's part of that, an expeditionary air group, between four and nine combat air squadrons, between six and 20 surveillance platforms, up to 15 transport aircraft, and somewhere up to 10,000 people. SDSR 15 also brought welcome financial certainty. I'm not pretending that all of our financial challenges are away. I'll cover more of that shortly. But a commitment to spend 2% of GDP 
over the life of this parliament means we can plan for growth with certainty and confidence. It also sends a really important message to our allies. Let me just briefly recap the content of that growth signal and the task that we're trying to pursue. We have three com new combat air squadrons, Typhoons and F-35s. We're going to buy a new uh, fleet of remotely piloted air system, more than doubling our current capability. We're going to buy maritime patrol aircraft. We're going to extend the out-of-service dates for lots of uh, uh, ISR platforms and our air transport platforms. And we're going to provide more of those vital, vital crews into the same. And overall, a welcome uplift of about 300 regular personnel to assist the growth. The question, again, though, is why grow us now? Well, I think what we have is that for the first time in a while, there's a coincidence between the requirement and the opportunity. The biggest driver of this uh, growth signal, um, as I say, are the global security picture and our national appetite to employ the military instrument. I think the re-emergence of Russia as a potential peer challenger is significant. And as the Chief of the Defense Staff uh, recently described, a new strategic competition between Russia and NATO. So when I was talking earlier about others have noticed uh, where are we, we have been strong in the air and have adapted, that's the sort of thing that I have in mind. Let me now turn in my final section to how we are going to meet this challenge. There are three distinct parts to it. Perhaps a little more on the challenge itself, then our conceptual approach to it, and finally, an identification of some of the tangible ways in which we are going to deliver the growth. Now, as many of you will know, an uplift of equipment doesn't equal capability growth until we've satisfactorily addressed what we would call the lines of development, training, personnel, uh, support, etc. It's an old chestnut. It sounds obvious, but we must not forget it. And this is taking a very large part of the work that we are doing, is moving beyond the headline of the platform into those deeper areas. What are the two aspects of that challenge uh, that stand out? Well, it's people and it's finance, because both of them are fundamental to us ultimately being able to deliver that, that success. Give you a feel for what the challenge is about. Before the defense review, and in fact now, uh, the RAF strength was about 7% short of what we uh, need. It's about 2,200 people. We need to address this before we can up uplift the 300 people in the defense review. I'm pleased to say that recruiting is strong at the moment, but it remains a big challenge. The big uplift in equipment also means that I have to reconfigure the people that I have. I need a significant aggregate increase in the skills in my organization compared to where we were before. Everyone in this room is acutely aware of the growing challenges of attracting and retaining those specialist skills. Let me give you just some examples of what that means in practice. If I just look at, uh, in the pilot, into training figures across our various conversion units, that needs to increase by around 70%, 70%, if we're going to grow our capability at a reasonable rate. Now, that sounds like a tough ask, and it comes off a pretty low uh, baseline that we've been through over the number of years. And these are the cadres which are often most difficult um, to recruit and the most difficult to retain. But it gives you some idea of the challenges um, we face. And you can't grow the capability unless you can pay for it. 
And the RAS plan budgetary allocation in the defense review didn't immediately give us all the money that we, uh, we needed. The whole principle here is about being a more efficient organization and then translating that uh, efficiency gain into growth. It's not an easy challenge, but it's a great challenge to have because the incentives are so powerfully aligned. If the RAF becomes a more efficient organization, the money re gets recycled and we become a more capable one. Frankly, I can motivate people around that. Let me then move on a little bit to explain our conceptual challenge to meeting uh, uh, those headmarks that I've described, because this too is fundamental to our success, how we think our way through this challenge. The goal is straightforward, as I say, create genuine and sufficient headroom to grow the, uh, the Air Force and move forward. Let me just give you an idea of some of the principles that we need to look at. First and foremost, I think we must, and indeed we will, act now. The challenge is simply too big to wait and see where, whether all of our existing approaches will work. Because if we wait until we discover that it isn't working, then it will already be too late to recover, and we'll have missed a golden opportunity. Secondly, we must ask, investigate every aspect of our current operation and our business model to see if we can approve it. Everything is on the table and up for discussion. Then we need to make sure that the solutions that we develop are, are going to endure. They're not just going to be sticking plaster solutions, which in all likelihood will fail over time. We need to accept that risk uh, is very closely tied to innovation. It's easy to say, but it's not always easy to deliver in practice. We can't be reckless. We need to retain our license to operate but we need to be further out there on the edge and be prepared to challenge. And that leads into the decisions that we uh, need to take because some of them will be hard decisions for the medium to long-term health of the RAF. Some of them will challenge us to do business in a different way. And finally, I come back to our plans must be realistic and affordable because ultimately, if they're not, they're destined to fail. Now, I think there's a risk here that this all sounds a little bit gloomy, and I might be creating the impression that I have some fundamental concerns about the RAF and what it's doing. This could not be further from the truth. We are truly outstanding at the tactical level execution of air power, as evidenced on a daily basis. Be it in the control of the air, I-star, strike, or air mobility, our people are doing a superb job. But what I'm talking about is the need to change in order to ensure we sustain that output and to ensure that we can grow the RAF of the future. And the principal uh, thing that we really need to get to grips there th with there is addressing our strategic workforce challenges. Let me now move on to identify some, not all, definitely, of the things we're pursuing with a view to creating our headroom for growth. I think they fall into two categories. There's the thing we've done previously, um, which are now starting to come to fruition, and there's those things we're considering as a direct result of SDSR 15 outcomes. Less mature, yet to be implemented. But both of these things together are key aspects of our growth potential. So let me look at some of the things that are already uh, in the pipeline. The most obvious of these is perhaps our new military flying training system, or MFTS which essentially contracts out or brings in a partner to work with us on the training of all UK aircrew. 
Now, a program as complex as this is, uh, has been risky, and there have been challenges along the way, and it's taken some time. But we're now at the point where I think we can exploit all that work, hard work that has been put in. And we need to, because this is the fundamental vehicle where I will grow those aircrew that I need for that future uh, front line. What I'm looking for is more people, train to a higher standard, and do it in a shorter period of time. Perhaps less um, uh, obvious at this sort of conceptual level is um, our uh, operating model within Air Command, and particularly how we manage our capabilities. <coughs> Going way back to uh, Lord Levine's report, it was about decentralizing capability planning and making the single services uh, responsible and accountable for acquisition. Well, we're there now, and I think the RAF now has very much greater control of its destiny. This helps our headroom challenge. It allows us the people who actually own the risks and deliver the output uh, to manage that capability growth. And the third thing, at the more at the conceptual level I'll mention, is uh, the implementation of our aviation safety and regulatory uh, model. Perhaps it doesn't sound like the sort of thing you traditionally talk about with, uh, with growth, but as I've mentioned earlier on, it's fundamental to have that uh, confidence that you're managing your risks well, that gets you the reputation is part of the founding of the building blocks on which I grow the Air Force and sustain our reputation. So that duty holder construct ensures that all of the operating and operational risk is fully considered. It has clear lines of responsibility and authority. If we understand our risks better, we make smarter decisions about what to do with our capabilities and when, and that's fundamental to growth. But I've already said that uh, our current approach is unlikely to be enough in all respects. So let me just give you a few examples uh, of some of those developing initiatives. I talked about that brilliance of tactical level uh, execution of air power. And we need also to stand up to the operational level. So we stood up a new joint air operations center at High Wycombe, providing our air C2 capacity and capability. Part of the joint environment, part of with allies, but we need to be standing up to the plate in that sense. And most recently, we've used that um, uh, center to control what we've been doing in East Asia, which hopefully you've seen a fair amount about in the media. Another uh, example of what we're looking at is the uh, establishment of a rapid capabilities office within Air Command. It has the purpose of driving innovation and capability delivery. It's about exploiting uh, already available solutions off-the-shelf uh, uh, technologies. If we can grow our capability more quickly or sustain what we have more effectively, it will free up that headroom for growth elsewhere. Let me also talk about Program Gateway, our single air mobility hub at RAF Bryce Norton. I think we're only really beginning to understand the potential efficiencies here. In the space of three years, our air mobility platforms, the average age uh, went from 42 years to three years. We now have a modern air transport force how are we going to make sure we have a modern uh, logistic um, uh, capability to support it? And then I could talk about estates as well. Is you'll have presumably uh, some will have read of the National Audit Office report on defence estate. Uh, not really complimentary, um, but in terms of our estate, we need a smaller estate. When we got a smaller estate, we can reinvest our money more wisely uh, and improve the condition of it because infrastructure is definitely a very large issue for us at the moment. 
So I could go on into a number of areas, and perhaps it would be better uh, to explore them further in questions. But let me just talk a little bit more about uh, the, uh, the people challenges uh, in particular. The people challenge is very much in that category of uh, we need to continue stuff that we've been doing before, but we need to challenge ourselves in to do stuff differently in the future. As this audience very well knows, the environment is changing out there. We cannot call on that pool of expertise we did previously in order to sustain things like our engineering capability. So we must change in order to continue. The first thing we have to do in that respect is deal with the requirement, is to look at that demand signal. We too often see things like the supply of engineers as being a supply problem. How do you recruit more? Well, we need to look at how do we reduce uh, the requirement. And that leads into uh, technology, for example. How do we exploit technology to reduce uh, those challenges? We then need to look at some of our assumptions about how we do our business. Uh, we tend to be a bottom-fed organization. Um, people work up through the organization, and then they, uh, they, they leave, and they go into, well, a lot of um, uh, defense industry. Uh, but they're not, they shouldn't be lost to us. I don't think there's any of the employers here who assume that when somebody leaves the company, then they'll never see them again. But we tend to see it that way. Why don't we attract people back in at the appropriate levels? Or why don't we uh, look at models which people can move in and out of defense industry and into the services? We do exciting stuff. Um, people want to be a part of that. But we'll need to get over the hurdle of, well, how do you um, uh, give due credit for service you do outside your company or out, outside defense uh, and elsewhere? We need to make sure that we give responsibility to the right levels in our organization. It's one of the concerns that I have that um, we tend to suck responsibility up when we've got a generation which really strive for that extra responsibility and that extra challenge. Because I'm acutely conscious that I will never outcompete in money offer, um, but I will compete very strongly with the outside industry in terms of uh, excitement and challenge and that sense of purpose and sense of responsibility. And I want to focus on those areas. And there are any other number of areas I could mention, but I'll just perhaps come back to, uh, to training. Um, we, the Royal Air Force UK services, have an enviable reputation around the world um, for training. It's one of our strong selling points. But we do invest a lot in it, and it does take a long time. And the longer people are in training, the less time they are on the front line. So we really question into our training system, not changing the output, but how we do it. A competency-based approach. When you reach the required standard, you move on to the next stage of training. At the moment, you do the whole training, regardless of what standard you are, and, uh, and it's a time-based course rather than a competency-based uh, course. So I offer them some themes uh, that we might want to explore further in discussion, but what I just uh, want to do by um, uh, highlighting those things in particular is emphasize the importance of that strategic manpower challenge uh, to the future growth of the Air Force. Uh, and I've been quite clear, and many will have heard me say it already, um, that uh, there is no greater um, priority for the senior leadership of the Air Force than engaging with those challenges. Now, some might say, well, where does that leave operations? Well, of course, uh, as the senior leadership, we're focused on operations. But I am confident 
The results are out there. I am confident that the RAF can do brilliantly well on operations. It doesn't require constant senior leadership intervention to make that happen. People are doing it very well. Where we do need a lot of strategic leadership intervention to navigate the change is in relation to our people challenges. Let me now then uh, uh, conclude. Um, I want to conclude just around the three main themes that I discussed. The first is to remind uh, uh, us of that evolution of the RAF since 1990. It's been remarkable. And it's the engagement, that level of engagement in operations um, for 25 years across the whole breadth of um, uh, operations the UK has uh, participated in, which is really, which gives us our strength and our sense of being as an organization. We've now been tasked to grow. There's a recognition of that valuable capability that we provide and how busy we have been. And that is partly for Joint, for Joint Force 2025, but it's also in order to ensure we can keep doing uh, what we're doing at the moment. The challenge is quite straightforward in a way. We need to meet that growth signal and simultaneously fight on operations. It's not unprecedented, unprecedented in our history, but it is rare and it is challenging. Turning that capability, uh, uh, those announcements in SDSR 15 into capability is the responsibility of the RAF uh, today. It's an opportunity to set the RAF on its very clear trajectory into its uh, second century. And much of what we do now will be setting the RAF um, for the next 30 or 40 years. It will define my tenure as the Chief of the Air Force. It's an evolution full of complicated risk. We need to safely navigate it if our growth is not to be hollow and in name only. Tasks we're we're, uh, one we're happy to accept. The first requirement is to generate the headroom to make it happen. Our main mission is to address those strategic workforce challenges. Now, 11 days from now, it's the 113th anniversary of or Orville Wright's first powered flight, but its preparation had been many years in the planning. Many others were experimenting in a field which was perhaps viewed at the time as being so complex that its problems were unsolvable. But Wilbur and Orville realized it was just a complicated problem which could be solved by considering the problem as a whole. I think that's a simple analogy for what the RAF must do today not forsake that tactical excellence which gives us our reputation, lift our gaze to the operational level, think well beyond today's problem. If we do, and we will, we will have identified the solutions which will allow us to grow into the future. It's time for us to demonstrate that agility and adaptability in pursuit of our new capability. Finally, I note that in 1905, while perfecting the Wright Flyer, a design near Dayton, Wilbur made a spectacular flight which lasted 39 minutes. Well, I'm at 38 minutes at the moment, and so I'm approaching that time where I think my time at the controls of this lecture has come to an end. I think it's an apt moment to draw it to a conclusion. Thank you very much indeed for your attention, and I very much look forward to your questions. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you.
Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.